The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going to kick off a new book out of the New Testament, and we are going to go through the book of Titus. And I've never preached verse by verse through Titus before, so this is going to be a tremendous uh, blessing for our body, for me individually, uh, hopefully for your soul. Uh, it's only three chapters long, but it is a powerful book. And it's three chapters, so it goes quickly. And one of the things I appreciate about Titus is he, Paul addresses so many different things in that short little book in three chapters. And every single one of those things is relevant to our life as a church, to you as a Christian, and even to your personal life as a believer or your home and family life. And we're going to see that as we go through. So uh, let's go ahead and we're going to kick off our introduction to the book of Titus. So before I delve into the verses, uh, you know, going verse at a time, paragraph at a time, thought at a time by the Apostle Paul, as we have done with previous books, we do need to lay some foundation with an introduction because you can't just go into a book cold turkey and assume everybody knows or need, uh, understands the needed information, the background of the book, context of the book, even who wrote the book. I am surprised at times how many people, Christians, and maybe just they never had this formal education, uh, how books are titled differently, like Ruth. Okay, that's some lady's name. Corinthians, that's a group of people at a church in the city of Corinth who wrote Corinthians. Most people would say Paul that know the Bible. And, but when you get to Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, it is not uncommon for people to think, well, who wrote Titus? And some folks will say, well, Titus did. And, well, no, he didn't. He's the recipient of that book. So that's just one example of why an introduction is appropriate to help to get the fullest understanding we can as we go through this uh, verse by verse. So today we just want to do a snapshot of an introduction. And I broke it up into six points. I also put a map on there, very important, because where Titus is as he's receiving this letter, the geography is important. And so we just put a map on there for you, and we're going to talk about where in the world Titus was at the time when he received this book from Paul. So uh, six points there. Let's go through those by way of introduction before we kick off this wonderful little epistle. And starting with the man, Titus. Who was he? Very important. Well, the man, Titus, was a Greek converted early in Paul's ministry. This is important, and, and Paul uh, mentions this specifically. If you've got your Bible and you go to Galatians 2, we'll look at a couple verses along the way in, in various books to help us with the background here. Who was Titus? Titus, there's limited information on Titus. He is mentioned about 13 times in the New Testament, mostly in Paul's, if not in all of Paul's epistles, is where he's exclusively mentioned. He's not mentioned in the book of Acts which is kind of interesting because most of Paul's associates or co-workers uh, that he spent time in ministry with are mentioned in the book of Acts at one place or another. But Titus is not mentioned by name in the book of Acts. There's a reason for that. But he's mentioned 13 times in Paul's epistles. One of those is in repeatedly in the book of Galatians where we're introduced to Titus. And if you look at Galatians chapter 2, it's significant that uh, of who this guy was, this Titus. He was a Greek. In other words, he was a Gentile. His Mom or dad, neither of them were Jewish, so he has no Jewish blood as far as we know. He was just strictly a, a probably, a, we don't know if he was a pagan growing up or a God-fearing monotheist. We have no idea other than the fact that he got saved under Paul's ministry. And Paul refers to him as a Gentile or a Greek. And that sets him apart from another one of Paul's workers, Timothy. Timothy was half Gentile, half Jew. So he was half and half. Uh, Timothy was different. He was 100% Gentile. And that plays into how Paul used Titus in ministry. If you look at Galatians 2, starting at verse 1, Galatians is one of the earliest books that Paul wrote. He wrote Galatians to deal with the controversy that was going on in the early church. There were Jew professing Jewish Christians who had infiltrated the church, and they were probably just professing and not truly born again passing themselves off as Christians, also passing themselves off as authoritative, influential teachers and preachers. And they brought a heretical teaching with them that was influencing a lot of true believers and unsettling the churches. And it was the idea that you're not saved 
by grace through faith alone, but there's certain individual works that you must do in order to be saved. And one of those, they said, was circumcision. So you had to believe in Jesus, repent of your sin, believe in the gospel, and get circumcised if you're a man, and then you would be saved. And they were proliferating this teaching in the early church became a huge problem. What that was is it was polluting the gospel. If you add anything to the purity of the gospel, you are undermining, polluting, distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you say that human beings have to do anything in order to be saved, that is distortion of the gospel. That's the theme of the book of Galatians. Whether it's you have to stop smoking cigarettes, or you have to reform your life, or whatever else, plus believe in the gospel. And Paul was a defender of the purity, the simplicity of the gracious gospel of God. That it was all his work, all his doing. The only thing that an unbeliever has to bring to the table is the confession of their sin and the belief and embracing of the truth of God in the gospel. That's it. This was being compromised by teachers in Galatia and other areas. And so, and Paul was furious. It infuriated him. You can see that in his book in Galatians. Because eternal souls are at stake. That's why he was furious, and justifiably so. And even some of the leadership in the church in Jerusalem was kind of being swayed by this. Oh, yeah, maybe, ooh, maybe we should make... Actually, what the problem was, they were trying to make Gentiles, pagans who converted to Christianity, they were trying to make them get circumcised before they could be Christians, legitimate Christians. Because the early church exclusively was Jewish believers who became Christians. And all those Jewish men were already circumcised. So the problem was, if you're a Gentile, you haven't been circumcised, and you want to become a Christian, then you've got to get circumcised like we did, and then believe the gospel and you'll be saved. And Paul says, no, that is not true. Paul said, I have been set apart for the gospel as a Gentile, as a, an apostle to the Gentiles, whereas Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And so God used Paul to preserve this purity of the gospel. No human works are involved. No circumcision is necessary. And so that is the theme of Galatians 2. So let's read it. So Paul's in the middle of this heated controversy. He doesn't agree with everybody. He's actually going to take Peter, the head apostle, on toe-to-toe, face-to-face, in public, on Peter's home turf regarding this teaching. Wow, what a, a monumental task that is. But that's what God was leading to do. And so part of this confrontation takes place in the book of Galatians. So Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, has been out. He's preaching. Some of these pagans are responding. They're believing in the gospel. They're getting saved. Paul's not making any of them get circumcised. The church of Jerusalem is hearing this. Oh, that's great. More people are being saved. But aren't those Gentiles being saved? Those brothers aren't circumcised. So they're looking down on Paul and his ministry. And so they have a council and they have some important meetings. And God prompts Paul to come up uh, to meet with the believers and leadership of the church to deal with this controversy. And then Paul's giving his own testimony of how he got saved and then called into the ministry and established as an apostle. Verse 1, chapter 2. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem to meet with Peter, James, John, the early church leadership who were being influenced in the wrong way. I went up there to meet with them with Barnabas. Now, Barnabas was a mentor to Paul. He was older than Paul, and he was serving alongside Paul in his first missionary journey. But they also, at the end of verse 2, it says, not only did I take Barnabas with me, we, we also, taking Titus along also. The reason he's bringing Titus, Titus is like show and tell. Well, you heard about our ministry word of mouth and what's going on, and God is doing great things. Did you know that God is even saving Gentiles? God is saving pagans? And here is exhibit A. Here is Titus. He's a pagan. He was a pagan. He is a Greek. He has no Jewish blood. And he responded to the gospel. He became a believer. And so that's why Paul is bringing Titus. And he's been training and discipling Titus. And Titus is now by Paul's side. For the rest of Paul's ministry. So he brings him up to Jerusalem. Verse 2, it was because of a revelation that I went up to Jerusalem. God told Paul to go to Jerusalem. And I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. And so, in other words, Paul said, I preach the same gospel you do that you got from Jesus because I got my gospel from Jesus as well because Jesus appeared to me literally and gave me the same gospel. So I'm not teaching a different message. And circumcision is not a part of the message. 
So I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation. So they had a private meeting among the council or the leaders for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. He wasn't sure how the leadership was going to respond. Uh, Verse 3, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, non-Jewish, was compelled to be circumcised. So what he was saying is, Titus came to know the Lord. He was never circumcised. I didn't require him to get circumcised. He doesn't need to be circumcised in order to join the Christian community. Verse 4, but it was because of the false brethren. These are false believers, professing Christians, Jewish Christians, teaching falsely works salvation through circumcision. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. So there were people literally spying around, following Paul, uh, stepping, watching, falling behind in his shadows, uh, trying to find a place where they could undermine Paul's ministry, spying on him to undermine his reputation. And these were Jewish professing Christians. And the main thing they were spying on is to see how the Apostle Paul was abusing all these liberties he was given. And one of the things that they couldn't stand that Paul was doing is that he wasn't, allow, he wasn't mandating Gentile Christians to get circumcised. And they were furious. So they're spying on Paul. They want to tattle on him, rat on him. Verse 5, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel will remain with you. The purity of the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, the purity. A uh, beautiful thing. Paul was committed to guarding that stewardship that God had entrusted to him. And so that's why Titus is so important. And this is one of the few times he's actually mentioned. He's influential as a visual aid literally to the entire early church and even the leadership of the church because even the apostle Peter was getting swayed and pulled into this deception by the Judaizers, these professing Jewish Christians who are trying to convince Peter that uh, if a Gentile gets saved, they need to get circumcised, they need to abstain from certain kinds of foods based on the law, works righteousness, basically. And Peter was like, oh, oh yeah, well, well, maybe that's true. And then Paul eventually had to confront Peter to the face. So this is Titus uh, that Paul uh, meets and takes on early on in his ministry, his ministry that almost extended 20 years. So that's one of the key places where we will... Uh, meet Titus. Uh, so he remained uncircumcised his whole life, Titus did. By the way, Timothy got circumcised because he was half Jewish. And Paul said, well, I want to be a Jew to the Jews. And so to keep them from stumbling, I'm going to have Timothy get circumcised because he's a Jew. That's okay. And that's why he did it. But it wasn't mandated. So that is the man, Titus. A couple other interesting things about Titus. We know from the ministry of Paul and reading all of his epistles that Paul trusted Titus tremendously. He makes comments in hindsight at the end of his ministry, reflecting on all the people that he's worked with in ministry. And he just makes some beautiful, personal, intimate, brotherly comments about Titus. As he looks back in ministry, because, you know, Paul's ministry expanded 20 years plus. And he had some hard times in ministry with fellow workers. I mean, think about it. Early on in his ministry, he was side by side with Barnabas. Barnabas was a mentor. He trusted Barnabas. They did their first uh, missionary journey together. They planted several churches together. And then they get back and they're having a respite in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas... Oh, and while they're on that missionary journey, another guy on their missionary journey, a younger guy, John Mark. And it was a, a dangerous missionary journey that they took. In the middle of the mission, the very dangerous, difficult missionary journey, John Mark, who was supposed to be on their team, he decided to bail. I'm out of here. That would be like when we went to the Mexico missions trip, uh, one of our key leaders saying, I'm out of here. Forget you. There's no fan or air conditioning in this house we're staying in. And the water is hard to get to and inaccessible, and it's really hot. And this air mattress keeps losing all of its air. This is my back hurts. I'm, le- I'm going home. And then just bails. The, the nine of us left behind, we would feel betrayed, let down, and we feel that our ministry would have been undermined. That's exactly what happened. That's what John Mark did. He bailed on Paul and Barnabas. Paul was furious. So they get home. They're resting from their first missionary journey. They're, making, they're reporting it to the church. They're ready to go on a second missionary journey. They're making plans after the fellowship meal and see who wants to go. And then Barnabas wants John Mark to go on trip number two 
Paul flips out and says, no way. No way. I am not letting John Marco. I will not serve with that guy. He's not going. He's a coward. I'm adding extra information. Um, but you can read this in the book of Acts. And what it says, literally what it says is that Paul the Apostle and Barnabas, who was an apostle to the churches, major leadership position, mentor of Paul, it says that Paul and Barnabas had a bitter disagreement. That is the terminology in your English Bible in the book of Acts. Can you imagine that? Two influential church leaders having a bitter disagreement. I don't know if I've ever seen that. No, I've seen that in many churches. That happens. It's happened all throughout church history. Well, a bitter disagreement, you know what that means? A vicious disagreement. Present tense. A vicious, ongoing, relentless disagreement about the philosophy of ministry and who they're taking on their missions trip. And neither of these guys is backing down. Paul and Barton, they both had authoritative positions and they also had very strong personalities. And so there was a rupture in not only the ministry team, but also in the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. So they decided, okay, fine, this is not going to work. Then I'm not going. If you're taking John Mark, I am not going. That's what Paul said. It's interesting. The book of Acts doesn't tell us who was at fault. It doesn't say that Paul sinned. It doesn't say that Barnabas was wrong. It doesn't say that the bitter disagreement was sinful. It doesn't say that. This is reality. God used this for His glory. So these two missionaries were broken up and God made two successful mission teams. As a result, Barnabas headed one. Paul got a new partner. His name was Silas and headed another. And then God follows the ministry of Paul throughout the rest of the book of Acts, not the ministry of Barnabas. So that's just one example of Paul looking back in 20 years of the partners he has worked with in the ministry where he had a falling out with. He had a falling out with his dear brother Barnabas. He had a falling out with his initial partner, John Mark. He had a falling out with a guy named Demas who abandoned him. He had a falling out with another guy named Alexander who supposedly was one of his fellow teachers. He had a falling out with a, a hypocrite named uh, Hymenaeus. And it's just his ministry is riddled with compromise and people who turned on him over time. So at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, he, he's frustrated, he's emotional, and he says, all have abandoned me. Which wasn't totally true, but all those that he mentioned had abandoned him, literally. But he's telling Timothy, man, everybody's abandoned me. And in a, in a large sense, that's true. There were some people who were trusted believers when he was imprisoned before uh, the trial, and there was nobody there to support him. Or nobody spoke up on his behalf. That's what Paul said. I've got witnesses here who are my friends committed in ministry, and when the allegations come, nobody speaks up for me. That's what Paul said. He was hurt. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see Paul reflecting back during the course of his long and difficult, fruitful ministry and the different people that, that God brought his way and the, the one consistent, even Timothy, who was his beloved son, he never had a falling out with Timothy. But when you read the epistles of Timothy, it is clear that Timothy had some shortcomings and weaknesses that were a challenge for Paul. Because uh, Timothy, he was timid at times. He wouldn't take initiative like he was supposed to. And actually one of the main reasons Paul's writing First and Second Timothy is he's saying, man, hang in there. Uh, be brave. Muster up some courage. And he was physically ailing and sick as well. You need some medicine. Hang in there. The interesting thing about Titus, who was with Paul probably almost 20 years of ministry, Paul never says those kinds of things to Titus. You need to suck it up. You need to be brave. Don't be a coward. Don't be a sissy. Oh, you're sick. You're a wimp. Anything like that. Titus, it is consistent. Titus is rock solid. He never says anything negative about Titus. In the whole book of Titus, he didn't say anything uh, like he says to Timothy in the epistles to Timothy. But at the end of his ministry, listen to some of the things that Paul says about Titus in hindsight. Titus was so rock solid, so mature, so faithful, so reliable, that Paul entrusted Titus to two key things that were very difficult in his ministry. One was as Paul was going around doing ministry and he planted this church in Corinth, and it became the Corinthian church, and Paul was there for a while, and then Paul left, and about shortly thereafter, he got news that the church in Corinth that he had planted had become infiltrated with sexual immorality at the highest level. This was being tolerated by the whole church. It grieved Paul's soul. As a result, he writes a letter, and he rebukes them and tells them, let's knock it off. We don't have that letter anymore. 
That was the first of four letters we know that Paul wrote to Corinthians. Then the next thing he hears, so that's kind of quelled a little bit. Okay, it sounds like they're dealing with the immorality issue. And then all of a sudden Paul gets reports and he hears that there's bickering and fighting in the church of Corinth. And there's all kinds of nasty division, fights and cliques in the church. And he is incredibly grieved by that. This is a church he started. So he writes another letter. That's 1 Corinthians. To address all this division that has run amok in the church. He's losing sleep over this. He says that in 2 Corinthians. Over these problems in the church. So then some time goes by. And then, oh, they have another problem in the church at Corinth. So first they're plagued with immorality among the believers. Secondly, widespread division in the church. And then a little more time goes by and all of a sudden he hears there are false teachers who have infiltrated Corinth. Not only are they teaching false things, they are undermining you by name, Paul. They are turning your church against you. This was probably the most devastating thing that confronted Paul in his entire ministry. Can you imagine? He goes in, gives them the gospel for the first time. They get saved. They come to Jesus through Paul. And then a few years later, they are turning on the Apostle Paul. All their loyalty, talking about him behind his back, bad-mouthing him behind his back, and showing allegiance to these false teachers. That ripped his heart out. And as a result, part of that is he writes two more letters, and he writes what's called the severe letter. It was a hard letter. It was nothing but a letter of rebuke, calling the Corinthians to repentance. And he knew, wow, this has got to be dealt with very delicately. I'm not going to bring it myself. But I have to send somebody very faithful, trustworthy, who is rock solid in their character, who can handle pressure, division, controversy, scandal. And of all the people Paul chooses, he chooses Titus to deliver this severe letter to this messed up church called Corinth. Because he totally trusts Titus. As a matter of fact... As far as we know, we believe that Titus delivered the first letter to Corinth. Titus delivered 1 Corinthians to Corinth. Titus delivered the third letter, which would be the severe letter, the missing letter to Corinth and possibly 2 Corinthians. So Titus had an amazing ministry among these very difficult Corinthians. Some people can handle different, difficult personalities well. Other people cannot handle difficult personalities well at all. So apparently Titus had this beautiful, balanced demeanor that could handle this kind of controversy. And he did. He did it beautifully. So, so Titus takes this very severe, severe letter of rebuke to the Corinthians. Uh, Paul is kind of waiting, biting his fingernails. He's anxious. He can't even think straight. He's traveling around. He's trying to do the work of the ministry. God opens the door in Troas to plant a church, and, and Paul can't even do it, and he leaves. He says, man, I just abandoned the open door God gave me because I was looking for Titus. I could not even sleep. Finally, he hooks up with Titus. He's apprehensive, waiting to hear the news. Titus tells him, Paul, you won't believe it. Praise God. They received the letter. They were convicted. They repented and even more, they love you and are committed to you. And Paul was just celebrating and rejoicing. He gives this whole account in the book of 2 Corinthians and other places. It was awesome. And part of this ministry to Corinth that Titus had that was very difficult, he's walking the fine line of being a representative and advocate of Paul and at the same time listening and ministering to the Corinthians. Very fine line. He, he built this great rapport with the Corinthians while he was there many times over the course of a few years. So much so that Titus was the one who gave the original idea to the Corinthians to put a church-wide offering together to give to the poor saints in Macedonia who need, or Jerusalem who need their help. There are Christians in these other churches, they don't have any money. They are being tortured, they are being persecuted, chased out of their homes. Homes are being burned down. We need to help them. And so Titus appealed to the Corinthians and they said, yeah, let's do it. And it took an entire year or more for the Corinthians to follow through on that because they got mad at Paul. So Titus goes back and says, you know what? You need to follow through on the commitment you made. And they did. They responded to Titus. And not only that, it was a big chunk of money. And Paul says, we sent Titus and two other faithful men of God with full integrity with that money to the church that needed it because Titus was above reproach in terms of his reputation. Nobody was suspicious of him. Everybody trusted him. Just an incredible, faithful, trusted man of God. So that's the biography that you can piece together through all of these epistles. 
to see this amazing man. And then in the end, in hindsight, here's some uh, comments from Paul about Titus in 2 Corinthians, where he says that uh, we were comforted by the coming of Titus. We rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, and I was not put to shame because they responded well, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. And Paul boasted about Titus to the Corinthians. And, and rightfully so, because Titus was a consistent, faithful man of God who stood with Paul through the long haul. He was consistent. And that's not true of all people. So this is an amazing man of God we're looking at. The man Titus. Uh, and then he calls him these beautiful terms in Second Corinthians 8. He refers to Titus as for Titus. He is my partner, my fellow worker among your midst, he said to the Corinthians. A couple other things about Titus. Um, served, like I said, anywhere between... A.D. 49 to 66 when uh, Paul died. So through the entire course of Paul's ministry, one of the very few that stayed with him through thick and thin the entire time. Amazing man of God. We're going to see more about him as we go through his book. So so that's the man. So let's go on to point number two. That's the book, uh, the book of Titus itself. It is one of three pastoral epistles written to Titus. And you might want to keep your finger in Titus as we'll we'll look at a verse or two uh, while we're going through it. Pastoral epistles, uh, th- that, the title pastoral means these books were written to their letters. Not, not really a book as much as just a letter. This is kind of a personal letter written to Titus. And Titus was a pastor. Titus was an emissary, missionary, pastor, leader, whatever you want to call him. But he had the authority of a local pastor and an elder in a church. That is clear. And so that's why in about 1700, somebody coined that phrase, the pastoral epistles uh, Titus, First and Second Timothy, because Paul wrote those to men of God who represented him in the local church as leaders in the church, as shepherds, overseers, quasi-apostles, and even pastors. So it was written by Paul to Titus. Uh, a couple other things about the book itself. Um, this is the so Paul wrote 13 epistles as far as we know that have been preserved in Scripture. He he wrote a lot more letters and epistles than that, but the ones that God preserved there are 13 epistles by the Apostle Paul. He wrote them between uh, like A.D. 48 and when he died around 67 A.D. Titus comes at the very end of all of his ministry and all of those letters. So out of 13 epistles, it's like the 12th one that was written, probably written between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and written near the same time as 1 Timothy. But the 12th epistle was written. One thing I want to say about the book in this powerful, short little book, listen to all the key doctrines that Paul addresses or mentions. And we're going to have the privilege of looking at all of these as we go through this short little book. Uh, Paul mentions to Titus election. You don't need to write this down. There's too many. Titus talks about election, eternal life, Christ as Savior, Christ's deity, inspiration of Scripture, grace, the universal nature of salvation. In other words, Jesus is the Savior of all nations, not just Jews. The second coming of Christ, substitutionary atonement, total depravity, God's love, God's mercy, regeneration, cleansing, the work of the Holy Spirit, justification, and heirship. That's just a few. So we're going to delve into all those as we go through. It's going to be a tremendous blessing. So in a nutshell, that is the book. Of Titus. Let's go on to number three after the book is the outline. This is just a simple, there's different ways you can outline the book. Uh, Paul did not intend it to be outlined because he wrote, this was just a letter to a personal friend and a pastor. It's kind of like if you're writing to your mother or a friend or a relative and you're actually writing a letter, you're probably not sitting there thinking, so how shall I outline this? Or how shall this be analyzed by an outline when I'm done writing it? Usually when we write a personal letter, we just write, right? Free flowing thought, it's fluid. Uh, But in terms of the content that he talked about, because he had a deliberate agenda, that's kind of how we can outline it. And so here's a simple outline, just a threefold outline. Um, Chapter 1, ecclesiastical. Big word. That's just He's talking about church stuff. Chapter 2, domestic. Puts a big emphasis on home life. What's the roles of men and women, young people, children, wives, mothers in the church? Or, I mean, in their life, 
So ecclesiastical, the church, domestic, at home, and then finally chapter 3, social. How do Christians live in the world, in the secular world, in which they find themselves as citizens of whatever country you're in? So it's kind of a neat, short way to remember points of emphasis going through the book of Titus. So that's the outline. Okay, going on. After the outline, we have the history. The history of the book of Titus, the history of Paul's ministry at the time when he wrote this. Uh, Written from Philippi, on number four, the history, it's written from Philippi, or Nicopolis, or Corinth. Have I confused you yet? Because depending upon what scholar you're reading, the bottom line, they're not sure. We know it's probably somewhere in the era of Macedonia. We're pretty sure about that. Which specific city? Uh, Give or take. Could have been Philippi. Could have been Nicopolis where he was resting for a bit. Could have been Corinth. Not sure. And even the date is, uh, say, I would say even from 62 to 66, somewhere in that window, the Apostle Paul wrote this. would have put it at the end of his ministry. Now, in the book of Acts, you can trace the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul, four missionary journeys. Actually, the last missionary journey of Paul is actually where he's going to Rome to appeal to Caesar because he's been arrested. So it wasn't a designed missionary trip, but he turned it into one. So you get the four missionary trips of the Apostle Paul cataloged in the book of Acts. And then Acts ends in Acts 28. And Acts ends rather abruptly, and it ends with Paul in prison. And he's there, I think, about two years. And then, poof, that's it. And it's like, whoa, whatever happened to the Apostle Paul? Is that it? Did he die then? Well, he didn't die then. Based on 1 Timothy, Titus, uh, 2 Timothy, other information, we know that Paul was released from that first Roman imprisonment. So the content of what we're going to read about in the book of Titus is nowhere reflected in the book of Acts. Everything that happens and transpired and what's going on happens after Acts 28. So you could call Titus Acts 29 and following. Just so you have a historical perspective of what's going on. Because it's later in his ministry. So, And based on desires that Paul had mentioned in Romans and other places where he said he wanted to go to Spain, which is way west beyond Italy, and we don't have any account of him going to Spain in the book of Acts or any of the other epistles. But we kind of think that he actually made it there in light of what he says in Second Timothy. I, I finished the course. I ran the race. I did everything I wanted to do. Now it's time for me to die. And so everybody thinks, oh, he must have gone to Spain. Even though that's not recorded anywhere in Scripture. So this is the end of his life. So he gets let out of that prison in Acts 28. He uh, has some about a two-year ministry maybe. And then he goes back to Rome. And then he's arrested again for the second time in Rome, and there, very quickly, he is executed, probably by beheading. So that's how his life ended. So that's kind of the historical context uh, when Paul writes this letter. A couple other things about the history. Um, the, oh, Titus served with the Apostle Paul probably on second, third, maybe even on that fourth missionary journey. It could very well be that he accompanied Paul to the first Roman imprisonment. Uh, Titus is last mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.10 where Paul says that Titus is going to Dalmatia, uh, which was an area or country known as modern Croatia or the former area called Yugoslavia, which is just here's the boot of Italy and then straight across going east. That's Dalmatia, where maybe Titus spent some ministry at the end of his life there. Uh, Tradition says that Titus eventually went back to the island of Crete, By the way, as Titus receives this letter from the Apostle Paul, Titus is on the island of Crete. And that's what your map is for. So in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean, down below there, there's this big island. It's called Crete. And it was a famous port where ships would go by. Paul had been there when he was going to Rome, stopped by there temporarily. And uh, Paul journeyed to Crete there where he knew there were Christians there, spent some time with them. And after spending time with them, he left Titus there on Crete and then Paul left. And so Titus is on this island of Crete where there are Christians there. And that's what he's doing there. He's there to do the work of Paul on the island of Crete. And then Titus eventually leaves Crete and he goes and ministers with the Apostle Paul in several different places. And then tradition tells us that, uh, we don't know if this is true, but that's what just tradition says, that Titus eventually went back to Crete and lived out the rest of his days as a pastor in Crete. Like I said, not sure if that's true or not. Um, There's a strong Jewish Christian presence uh, in Crete from the time Paul was there, uh, Pentecost, time Titus spent there all for the next 900 years until the Muslims came in and almost squelched Christianity's entire existence on that that island of Crete. 
But Christianity survived on the island of Crete and then began to grow again, and God grew it, and now even today, uh, with 600,000 people on that island living there today on the island of Crete, there are some Christian churches that exist there still to this day. So the church survived almost 2,000 years on this island. So that's just a window shot, a sneak peek of the history to this book and to the ministry of Titus. Now we'll go on to the geography because this ties into the history of Titus. The the geography of this island, and you can look at your map while I'm talking because it might help. So you got the boot there, that's where Rome is, and then right in the middle of the Mediterranean center of the page in that map, that is the island of Crete. Uh, regarding the geography. Titus was Paul's proxy in Crete. In other words, Paul said, I'm an apostle. I leave you here as a representative of the apostles. And what you speak is authoritative to these people and to these churches. And so that's what I mean by a proxy. He was filling in for Paul authoritatively on behalf of God, speaking truth and doing the ministry that God had given him to do. Regarding the geography of the island of Crete, it is mentioned in the book of Acts a couple of times. It's a very large island in the Mediterranean Sea, one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea, and there are up to, they think, six or 7,000 islands in the Mediterranean Sea, Crete being one of the largest ones, 150 miles long and anywhere from 6 to 35 miles wide. Um, it is covered with mountains up to 8,000-plus feet, and as a result, it's got all kinds of lush valleys and some... They say uh, beautiful, fertile plateaus all over the island as well with mild and temperate weather. They've got all kinds of things that they can grow there and they have uh, animals there. and that's uh, So they get their living from food they grow there, fishing, pretty much of a self-sustained island even today. There's apparently 600,000 people living there today on the island of Crete. Some of you, maybe if you've ever been on trips and mission trips or maybe a trip to Israel and then the world of the Bible, maybe you've actually gone by and taken a ship to Crete or gone driven by Crete and waved hello. I know Kyle was telling me they drove by Crete and waved as they went by. So it's still there. It's an active place even today. Uh, in Paul's day, as you can imagine, before Christianity came, it was a totally pagan island. Who knows what they were worshiping? But they were worshiping something, whether it's rocks, trees, some god they made up, the stars, the moon. Totally pagan. Then go to Acts chapter 2. Because like I said, ever since Paul and Titus were there, there's been a Christian presence almost nonstop, unbroken for 2,000 years. So Christianity began under the era of the beginning of the church. So on the day of Pentecost, Jesus ascends into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit 40 days later. The Apostle Peter and all the the Apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit and Peter begins his preaching ministry. He gives the Gospel. It's a feast time there in Jerusalem. So there there are thousands, if not millions of people in Jerusalem. Jews from all over the world. And they are from every nation, tongue, country. And apparently there are some Jews who somehow ended up on the island of Crete who are there at Jerusalem hearing Peter preach the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. So in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 16, Peter's talking about uh, Pentecost. I mean, sorry, Acts chapter 1. Let's go to chapter 2. I'm looking at the wrong chapter. So Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost and shortly thereafter, devout men from every nation under heaven. So there were these uh, apparently Jewish monotheists on the island of Crete. I don't know how they got there, but they're living amidst just a bunch of pagans all over the island of Crete. And so some of these faithful Jews made it over there to Jerusalem. They heard Peter preach about this Jesus for the first time. They're like, wow, what's that? Verse 6, and when this sound occurred of the Holy Spirit, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So some, you know, Paul and the or Peter and the apostles are preaching apparently in Cretan, whatever that was. They were amazed. Wow! How are these Galileans speaking in our own language? Verse eight. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? These people were from verse nine. There were Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. Verse ten. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya, Cyrene. Visitors of Rome, proselytes, verse 11, here it is, Cretans and Arabs. This obscure island. They were there and they heard the gospel. 
we hear them in our own tongue speaking the mighty deeds of God. And by the way, there was a great response to the preaching of Peter. Many of these people got saved and they went back to their hometown. That's probably exactly what happened. Some of the Cretans got saved, went back to their home island, and that's where Christianity began. But they didn't have any pastors or teachers or apostles. It was just they're doing the best they can and all they have is the Old Testament. Can you imagine? You're a brand new Christian all you have is the Old Testament. Good luck. And it's like, yeah, I heard about that Jesus. Jesus, where? I don't see your name in the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus, help me figure it out. Could have been the Cretan Christians there for years were praying, God, send us more revelation. And lo and behold, here comes the Apostle Paul and here's Titus. How refreshing is that? Let me tell you more about that Jesus you heard. 20 years ago when you came to Jerusalem. And by the way, here's some new Scripture for you. Add that to your Bible. But that's what happened. So we believe that Christianity started with these Jews were there without any direction or further training. And then 15 years into it, God graciously sends the Apostle Paul and Titus to this island of Crete. And Paul stays there and he says, Okay, Titus, you need to take care of these people. You need to muster up and strengthen these churches. And you need to give them further doctrine and explain all these things to them. And give them the fullness of truth that we have revealed to us and encourage their hearts and establish leadership in all of the churches. That was Titus's task on that island. And that is a monumental task. Uh, go to Acts. This is a funny verse. Titus 1, verse 12. So Paul takes Titus to this island of Crete that's kind of isolated from the rest of the world. And you know, when people get isolated from the rest of the world, they get kind of weird and goofy. And the Cretans were weird and goofy. And they were actually proud of it. You know, people like in Texas. Anyway, not goofy, but... When I lived in Texas, you were proud to be a Texan because it was like your own independent nation. And that's kind of how Crete was. It was his own independent nation. But listen to what Paul says. And it's kind of, what are you, why are you saying that, Paul? Or I don't understand that. So he, he kind of warns Titus. You know, I understand. You know, I left you there. I'm here. I'm trying to encourage you and give you more stuff to tell them. And I understand there's uh, false teachers there. And one thing that you need to understand, Titus, about the, some of the Cretans on that island, verse 12, uh, one of their own prophets there among the Cretans, a prophet has well said, and truly so, that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Wow! That's coming from the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul didn't make that up. He's actually repeating a, a colloquialism that was known on the island of Crete. That was their reputation by people all around them. And people got to know the Cretans because they'd do business with them as their ship comes by and their ship comes by and their ship comes by. And they're having all these interactions with these Cretans on this island. It's like, man, those people are weird. Uh, not only are they weird, uh, they're liars and they're ripping me off with the money and what they want to buy and sell. And not only that, they are lazy. Uh, and this is the observance of all these other people who are observing the Cretans. Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Evil beasts, evil, uh, beastly. Probably some violence attached with that. Vicious. Did you know that even today, on the island of Crete with those 600,000 people, they say that it is just riddled with family feuds and factions all over the island? It's not the Hatfields and the McCoys. It's the Hatfields and the McCoys and the Joneses and the Wood, and just everybody, and they've got all these cliques. And they say that every family owns a gun. That's today in Crete. How dangerous and scary is that? So their heritage lives on. But you know what's amazing is despite their character as fallen, evil, violent pagans, the grace of God invaded that island, invaded their pagan lives with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and set many of them free. That's how awesome the gospel is. It didn't matter that they were pagans and liars and evil beasts. Anyone can be saved. God is the Savior of the world and the, God's grace is greater than all of our sin, isn't it? the promise of Scripture. That's how powerful the Scripture is and literally transformed and changed some of these lying, dangerous, lazy, pagan gluttons and made them new, precious creatures in Christ. That is the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That is good news. Oh, just a couple other interesting things about Crete. Uh, apparently, did you know that Zeus was born on the island of Crete? That's what they say. Now, for those of you who don't realize, Zeus, he's not a real guy, okay, just so you know. He was a fictitious Greek god. The Greeks thought he was real, but he's not. He's phony, it's baloney, it's a story, it's a myth, but according to the myth, Zeus was born in a cave on the island of Crete. 
And there was a real guy in 1541 who was born there, and he was El Greco, and he became a very renowned, famous artiste during the Spanish Renaissance. So that is the island of Crete. Let's go on to number six. The purpose of this book, we've alluded to it, even referred to it specifically. There's not one purpose why Paul wrote his letter. He had many reasons of why he wrote letters. One is probably just to encourage uh, Titus, his brother in the Lord. Number six, the purpose, to bring order to the churches. There was a formal and deliberate uh, purpose, clearly stated in chapter 1. I'll just read verse 1 and following. In Titus chapter 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, verse 4, my true child in a common faith. Titus was saved under the evangelistic ministry of the Apostle Paul. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete. That's a purpose statement. He's got other purposes, but this was the first one. For this reason I left you in Crete on that island. With all those people that's widespread. In order that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. That These churches are fledgling. They lack organization. They need leadership attack. They need help. And Titus, you have got to start at the top. You've got to lay down a godly leadership to bring order to all these churches in Crete or all these Christian families. It's got to start there. And that is exactly what Titus did as far as we know. He fulfilled his mission. So going back to why did, what was the purpose of this letter to establish uh, order in the church, to establish elders starting with the leadership. Uh, another purpose that he delineates uh, in the epistle is to warn Titus of and commanding Titus to silence false teachers, namely Jewish legalists who had infiltrated the church there in Crete. So you've got you to shut those guys down. Another purpose uh, was to instill proper domestic behavior among these Cretans. They grew up as Cretans with Cretan habits and Cretan customs and Cretan ethics, which meant they had no ethics. They were lazy drunkards. And so now there's a Christian worldview and a Christian ethic by which you must conduct your life in order to Jesus Christ. And that's why this book was written. So it's going to help us in that respect as well. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul also wrote to Titus to explain good works in light of gross license. Titus is distinct among Paul's epistles by virtue of the number of times he refers to the importance of good works. Because it's out of the ordinary. It's over the top in terms of proportion that he mentions it for this little epistle. James is known for good works. Here, the Apostle Paul is known as the Apostle of works, telling them why they need to live out good, by good works, holy living in every area of life. Because the Cretans, man, they struggle with that. That was not a part of their heritage or culture. Uh, another purpose, how to be light to a lost world. Very important to the Apostle Paul. They had their own self-sufficient government. They're, I mean, they were under the province of Rome, but they had some independence Crete did as an island. And it was pagan to the core. So Paul's writing to Titus to tell the Christians, here's how you as a Christian need to live under the leadership of pagan government. I mean, we need that message today, don't we? How do you live as a Christian in a secular world under pagan rulers? God has a very specific answer and plan to that. So we're going to benefit uh, from Paul's instruction to Titus very practically, and we can implement it in our own life of how we are to be good citizens wherever we are, our city, our state, our country. He also writes specifically uh, to tell him a little bit more about church discipline and how to carry it out, especially when you've got somebody who's not going through the Matthew 18 process and all the steps because they are so vile and evil, you skip three steps and just go right to step four. Some people require that because of the nature of their sin. That's going to come up in this epistle. And then he concludes his epistle by updating Titus on Paul's future plans of ministry, uh, what uh, some of the other brothers are doing. Some are going to come meet Titus and they're going to rendezvous. Uh, and then Paul actually wants to rendezvous with Titus himself so they can spend some time together. And that's probably exactly what happened. They come together, Paul and him meet and they get to spend the winter together and be refreshed and have fellowship and reflect on the ministry and pray together and make plans before God as to how God's going to use them in the future. And then that's how uh, God 
or how the Holy Spirit ends the book of Titus. And so that's just a snapshot, an overview, and a survey of this book of Titus. So next week we're going to delve right in verse 1 and we'll see how far we get. Uh, But I do want to close with this wonderful little passage. So look with me, Titus chapter 3. Just a great reminder of, you know, we we could put our names in that blank in Titus 1.12 where it says, you know, the Cretans were yucky, yucky, yucky. We could do the same. Denver Bronco fans are lazy gluttons. I, I was one of those. Uh, and everything else. Evil beasts. You should see us at a game. Uh, and on and on. So if you're a pagan, you're an unbeliever. That's our, our biography as well. And then something changed. And that was the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Remind the believers there to be subject to rulers. These are pagan rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, be a light, to malign no one. Wow! To malign no one, even the candidate you're not going to vote for. Verse 2, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all people. Why? Verse 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. But, I love the but in verse 4, changed everything. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared through the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, verse 5, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. We all need mercy, don't we? That is the grace of God, the mercy of Jesus Christ. According to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, we were born again. And by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly, the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And all God's people said, Amen. That's why I like the letter to Titus. With that, let's go ahead and pray. To the Father. God, we do thank you for our time together and this day of worship. And this day of worship for us, which began even during the Sunday school hour and setup time. And uh, we thank you for all of these things. We thank you for the church, the body of Christ. We thank you for the family of God and all redeemed saints. We thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the book of Titus and all that we're going to learn. And God, help us through your spirit to apply these truths to first to our own life before we look at anybody else, to our own personal life, that we might please you in everything that we do and then try to apply it in our families and then in our church and also in society, God. But we need your help. And we we know, we trust that you're going to give that to us. We thank you so much. We love you. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.